0: might be the last time you see me standing like this because we're off uh, up to uh, the Taupo River area this afternoon and one of the plans we have is to get skiing, so by well, this time next week I may have a broken leg. This will be fun, treating a broken leg. <laughs> right, um, this week we continue in our study of Ephesians chapter 1 and we'll be looking this time at verses 11 to 14. You could turn there now. I hope that you have brought your toolboxes. I have mine here as a little reminder of what we spoke about last. And today, we're going to add something to it. We're going to look to put a certificate of competence inside. You know, many people may have tools, but really they lack the authority to use them. Now, why do I say authority when maybe I should really be talking about ability? Well, it's like this. Mainly, it doesn't fit with my sermon theme. (laughs) Well, actually, what I'm trying to say is that ability on its own can merely be the potential to do something. It's often an unrealized and empty space. It only becomes real and useful when authority takes charge of ability. I know what to do, and I know how to do it, and I know I can do it. When a tradesman arrives at your door with tools in hand, they might look smart, they might look haggard, but you have no way of knowing if they're any good. But if they're confident in demeanour and they can provide documented evidence from a respected authority, then you're going to have a bit more reassurance that they're not going to break your house to pieces or fill it with dust. Similarly, you probably wouldn't want to visit a lawyer without a bunch of those nice certificates on the wall behind them because the advice that they give you may turn out to be even more expensive than that bill. Authority backs up ability. So today I want to demonstrate the authority behind our own abilities as Christians. And before we go on to read the passage, let's just quickly recall that Paul has told us that God has revealed the mystery of his purpose to bring all things together under the headship of Christ. So how does that affect us, you might ask? And that's one of the things we're about to find out. So, reading from verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. I pray that God would make his word real in our hearts and in our lives. Now note those first two words. They are very vital. In him. In who? In Christ, of course. Immediately we hear the good news, and not for the first time either, as we shall see. Now this might be a rather obvious point, but I don't want anyone who might hear this to be at all confused. It's very important to clearly understand that salvation lies only in Christ. It isn't Bob or Alice that will save us, but Christ. For no human could accomplish what he did. Jesus Christ was the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for for so long. And his arrival changed the whole world and all of mankind He was a lot more than they expected. Things would never be the same again. And why did the Messiah have to be the Son of God? Well, if you think about it, it makes sense. You know, something that is fundamentally flawed can't make itself whole again because the flaw just stops it from doing so. And that's us. That's mankind. We are fatally flawed by sin. If we're left to our own devices, we are born in it, will live in it and we will die in it. Only God, who is perfect, has the ability to repair that flaw and forgive us our sins. And yet, he wouldn't just do that and just reach in from outside creation and make everything right, because that would have left things unbalanced. You see, man had created a debt of sin that required punishment. It was there and it was real and it couldn't be denied. To do so would deny God the righteousness of his character. Where there is sin, he must punish it. There is no alternative. He is always consistent. And that is a great comfort and blessing on its own. And when you stop to think about a righteous and vengeful God, it ought to be a very scary image of him. Because against his might, we are nothing. We just have no answer. And although we mustn't ever forget that image, since it is part of what Scripture calls a healthy fear of the Lord, we can also see from the study of the Bible that God is also possessed of a very great, in fact, an enormous love. And it is from love rather than righteousness that He chose to send Jesus Christ, His Son, to live as man, then to die on the cross and pay the penalty for all man's sin. As Son of God and fully God Himself, only Jesus had the power to balance those scales between righteousness and sin, and that is why He had to do the job. In completing that work, He not only purchased our freedom, but He purchased us. He owns us, and that is why Paul speaks of Christians as being in Christ. Now, if you are in Christ, then you are in the kingdom, and all that we have spoken about and all that we are going to speak about today is true for you. If you are not in Christ, then you are outside and you are excluded. There is no small print. There is no debate. Being near Christ or thinking about Him or valuing His ideals will not do a single thing for you. What on earth are you doing out there when you could be in Christ, secure secure forgiven, and with the promise of eternal life in heaven. The the alternative isn't some sort of oblivion. There are real consequences. Revelation 20.11 tells us what will happen at the end of time. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works, by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire you know it's a shame really that this sort of passage has become so devalued we don't want to hear fire and brimstone preaching anymore and it's a bit of a funny image isn't it you've got this idea of this fellow in a dark robe high up in a pulpit somewhere leaning over and trying to scare you to death but the fact of the matter is that it's real a lake of fire, an eternal lake of fire is what awaits us if we are not in Christ what an awful waste when the alternative is so simple and so glorious God our Father wants to give us so much and he doesn't try to hide the message he wants to see our names written in that book of life and to drive home the message, Paul uses this phrase in him very repeatedly and I believe he's trying to make a point And we see this in our passage. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sin. Of the forgiveness of sins. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in, all, in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. Verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Every spiritual blessing, God sovereignly choosing you, redemption, the glorious drawing together of all things, an inheritance not of earthly things but heavenly imperishable things, a trustworthy Lord and a divine promise sealed by the Holy Spirit. These are the things we have just read about that are promised to us in Christ. They are on one side of the scales, Well. What's on the other? Judgment and a lake of fire. Friends, it just doesn't add up. I ask you, what are you going to do with this knowledge? Are you a Christian? Is your name in the book? Well, then you must serve him with thanks and rejoicing. If you are not a believer, then you need to think very hard about that lake of fire and why you would want that to be your eternal destiny. I beg of you, please don't stay in that place. Well, now that we have dealt with the first two words, let's move on to the third. Well, Actually, let's look at the rest of the passage. I'm not going to micro-dissect the whole thing. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I'd like to believe that by now there's no doubt as to the source of our inheritance. It is certainly Jesus. Now, note how definite the language is. We have obtained, not that we might obtain an inheritance. Now, John MacArthur's commentary on this part of Ephesians has a very interesting (coughs) note in it. It says that when something in the future was so certain that it could not possibly fail to happen, the Greeks would speak about it as though it had already happened. And this is the case here. This is the way this phrase is constructed. It has definitive certainty. There's no doubt about it. We have obtained an inheritance. Now, it's one thing to be certain of um, something in human terms where changed circumstances can move the goalposts at any time, but quite another to be certain of something that has been divinely promised. God cannot and will not fail us. Do you remember what I said earlier about his character being consistent? Well, because his character is consistent, so are his promises. If God says that he will do something, it always happens when and how he says it will. When he says that we have obtained an inheritance, there can never be any doubt that we have. And this is wonderful security for us. You might recall last week when our friend Vijay was here, he spoke about how many other religions serve angry gods and that consequently humans spend a lot of time trying to please them so that they won't get treated badly or maybe that they'll get something that they really want. Well, as Christians, we never have that problem because our God, the true God, is consistent and sovereign. He will always act for his glory and our good. He is not manipulated by any man's actions. What a blessing and a privilege we have. So, we can be certain that we have obtained an inheritance. It is already guaranteed and with us if we are believers. And it seems to me that the word inheritance is a very well chosen term for the gift that we receive. After all, an inheritance is something that generally we haven't worked for it is the fruit of another's labour, and yet we will benefit from it. It cannot be earned, and it may well be undeserved. Some of us here might be, have, have been fortunate enough to receive an inheritance. Well, I did many years ago when I was a young man. I inherited my uncle's car. And I can't tell you how exciting and marvellous that was for a 16-year-old to get a well, a pretty new car, actually. Can I ask you to try and think what it might feel like You know, if you haven't had this experience? Just say somebody phoned you up and said they were a lawyer and that you just got a huge amount of money from some wealthy relative you'd never heard of. What would that feel like? Just try and hang on to that idea because Paul would really like us to have at least that feeling when we think about what we have been promised in our heavenly inheritance. But by now I reckon you might be wondering exactly what that inheritance would be. Well, here's a bit of a list, and it's it's a long one. Peace, love, grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, power, mercy, forgiveness. Do you have that sense of excitement yet? Because there's a lot more. Righteousness, truth, fellowship spiritual discernment, heaven, eternal riches, glory, and every good thing that comes from God. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul tells us, Therefore let no one boast to men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, all things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's this is the most amazing inheritance of the believer, the very climax of it all. Through Christ we belong to God. Of course, in that knowledge we must ask the question will we squander our inheritance or will we use it wisely as was intended by the giver? Each one of us must search our own hearts to find the answer there. At this point we must ask the question why why have we obtained this inheritance to have a good life perhaps because like me we're such marvelous specimens of humanity that we deserve to be given good things of course that isn't the case although we have been undoubtedly been blessed richly we must never forget who we have been blessed by by our creator it is for his purposes that we exist, and it is for His purposes that we should aim to live our lives. And Paul sets us straight in the balance of verse 11 and verse 12. And he writes, Being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. We were chosen, not randomly, but specifically to fit into the plans of God. And those plans include all things. Not just a few things, perhaps in a quiet corner of the universe, but all things. Our God is sovereign creator in control of everything at all times according to a specific plan with a specific outcome. And that is the praise of His glory. That's our answer. Our inheritance is for the praise of His glory. And that is an outcome that is inevitable because irrespective of what happens, God will be glorified. Now, Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 are very familiar, I'm sure, to most of us. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We all know that. okay? But there's a little bit at the end we often forget. And that is to the glory of God the Father. That's what it's all about. Now, although God has the power to accomplish His glorification alone and works everything inexorably towards that purpose, it remains true in a mysterious way that you and I can add to the process. We can never take it away, but we can participate. Now, If I go across the road there and I go and stand in the Whanganui River, chest deep, with my arms out and my hands cupped like this, and I make a good... like this, do you think I'm going to stop one bit of it flowing into the sea? No. I'll probably just get knocked over and drowned. Some of you might like that. (laughs) It's a futile action, okay? But if I go with the flow... My tiny little addition of energy might just help a little bit. That, that bit of water will arrive just the smallest fraction of a second earlier. It is our privilege and our responsibility as believers to work for the glory of God, to go with the flow of the Spirit. What we do and what we say has consequences, not just for ourselves in terms of the journey of the sanctification, but for the glory of God. And that is why we are repeatedly encouraged to remember this at all times. 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And 1 Peter 4:11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it. As with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is one of the principal reasons that believers should be scrupulous in their behavior at all times. Because our poor poor choices reflect badly and undeservedly on God. And why would we want to bring shame on the one who has given us so very much as we have just seen? It's a very, very poor reward. There is so much to be gained by living God's way. I want to be clear here. This is a little bit of an aside. But, you know, the believer will never avoid trouble. Scripture promises that we are born to it. And we read about this in Job 5.7. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And if we hear any doctrine that promises only blessing, we should know that it is false. Because we live in a world that is tainted by sin, and therefore we will always live with its results. But how should we live? With or without the hope of our inheritance that gives us the strength to carry on, to help ourselves? and others in times of trouble. Yet we must also avoid being sanctimonious in our scrupulousness. Now that's a fine mouthful, isn't it? (laughs) There's a type of Christian whose standards of behaviour are impeccable, but who always grates on those around them, because they are aloof and judgmental. They are modern-day Pharisees, They live for and love the tiniest law. And yet, as we've already heard in our reading this morning, that law has no power to save. We must not be like that. What is the answer then? The answer lies in that we are instructed to love our neighbours as ourselves. So, with loving actions as our overarching aim, something to compare all our work against, we can live real Christian lives that are a witness to God's glory on earth and are an encouragement to unbelievers. Now at this point in the passage, Paul is speaking to Jewish Christians. He wants them to understand that their inheritance under the new covenant has nothing to do with their nationality, but everything to do with their having Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that's why he uses this this phrase. He speaks of we who first trusted in verse 12. But he has the same message For the Gentile believer in the very next verse. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantor of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I want to talk a bit about this matter of trust. Um, Do any of our handymen or farmers or whatever know what this is yep it's a very clever device for joining two pieces of chain okay, so I've got two pieces of chain and I pop it through there like that and through there like that and then I get my pliers and I give it a good squashing hopefully you don't squash my finger okay now I've got one piece of chain that's actually almost as strong as the original. Now that's very useful if I'm making a chain fence or something like that, but what does it have to do with Christians? I want to suggest that trust is a consequence of faith and that faith is the link that brings us together with God. Without it, we have two pieces of chain that will never come together usefully. With that link of faith in place, we can do some work. They are as one. And this is why faith is critical in salvation. Without it, man and God is never, are never reconciled and there is no inheritance. Well, it's just, this is quite an uh, Sorry, I've jumped ahead a little. We've just spoken about the certainty of trouble and our behaviour in it from an outside perspective but what about its effects on us inwardly what happens when trouble comes to us well trials one of the things that happen is that trials give us a bit of a spiritual reality check on the strength of our faith that link if we tend to become bitter and resentful as a consequence of testing well it's because our faith is weak So, what is weak faith? Our faith is weak when we do not believe in our hearts that God is really who He says He is, that He cannot or will not do what He says, and that we are the most important people in the universe. It's depending on me and not on thee. If we find ourselves like this, what can we do to change and make our faith stronger? Well, it helps to have some understanding of what faith is. Faith is not the same as knowledge, although it has a basis in knowledge and will grow as our knowledge grows, but faith goes well beyond just mere knowing. It has a very strong element of trust to it that results in holding on to something despite anything that others might say. To have faith in Christ, I must first understand the facts of the Gospel, Then I must approve of them, agree with the facts, and the most fundamental agreement must be that I am a sinner, that Christ has paid the price for my sins, and that he holds the only key to my salvation. I must also have the desire to be saved by by Jesus. But none of these things add up to saving faith. That comes when I put my trust in Christ as my Saviour, and that trust comes from my heart. The link is squashed together. Now I have exercised faith. How then can I grow and maintain that faith? Well, Romans 10:17 says thus faith comes from what is heard, okay? And what is heard comes through the word of Christ. What are you doing today? You are hearing the word of God. If you are listening and not asleep like Colin at the back, then you are helping to build your faith. And contrary, contrary to popular belief, faith is not made stronger by ignorance or believing against the evidence. When we have true evidence about Christ, we are better able to put our trust in Him. And where will we get that reliable evidence? Well, from God's scriptures, of course. We have to study God's Word every day and get to know Him better. And then our faith will grow and be strong. Why is the church so weak today, often? Does it focus on faithful preaching of God's Word? Is the congregation faithfully studying God's Word? Sadly, in many cases, it's not. And, and I stand guilty like this as well. You know, when I prepare a sermon, I realize that the principal reason that the pastor is a better Christian than me is really just because he does regularly what I'm supposed to do. He studies the Bible deeply and often. Let us be sure that we are feeding our faith properly so that it never becomes a weak link in the chain. The last aspect of our passage today I want to look at is the latter part of verse 13 and the whole of verse 14. And it reads, In in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the prize of his glory. Now, it was once very common to close letters or official documents with a wax seal. And some of us may have even seen these things. Basically, a big blob of wax was dripped on where the letter was closed. You might not even need an envelope. You close it up and you drip a big blob of wax on there and then you might have a stamp. or Even some people had a ring that they pressed into the The wax to make a mark. And there were lots of objectives for this exercise. Well, firstly, it stopped anybody from opening the letter who wasn't supposed to, or maybe opening it and changing it a bit because these were official documents. Secondly, it was proof of ownership and it was a demonstration of the authority of the sender. Every important person had a unique seal so that the recipient of the letter could be sure that the document they'd got really came from the perp- from the person who claimed to send it and that it wasn't a forgery. The sight of the seal was a reassurance to both sender and receiver. Now, Paul says that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and if you think about those things, they're all true for us, aren't they? What it means practically is at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit begins to live inside us. and Consequently, our lives can never be the same again. He empowers us and equips us for ministry through the gifts He gives us. Scripture tells us that He is our helper and advocate. We receive protection and encouragement from Him. God has set His mark on us as a very gracious guarantee of inheritance. Sadly, Mankind is a very suspicious lot, And we really like instant gratification. We want it all and we want it now. And we want to know why we've got it. Although every believer is guaranteed salvation and its benefits, the very instant we accept Christ as Saviour, as we go along in our life's journey a bit further, we might begin to be unsure of salvation's reality and whether we really are going to get it and all the things that go Along with it. And this is one of the reasons that God has graciously given us the Holy Spirit. He wants to reassure us of our relationship. And the other thing is that He puts His mark and authority on us so that everyone who sees us, and remember that means people who are in the spiritual world as well, will know that we belong to God. We are the genuine article. The seal shows that we are God's possession entirely and forever so where is that mark on you Dave you might ask is it in your hair somewhere or maybe on your foot inside your shoe because I can't see it anywhere of course it's a spiritual seal so we cannot see it physically but it is nonetheless real it's worldly visibility however lies in our obedience to living Christ-like lives, how we act and speak by ourselves and when others are around. The seal of the Holy Spirit is the certificate of authority I spoke about at the beginning of the sermon. And all believers have it, but we use it in differing ways. We might leave it in our toolbox or we might take it out now and again to admire it. I believe that God's desire, though, is for us to have it framed and hung on the walls of our office and our homes, to print it on business cards and give it to everybody that we meet, to have it written on the sides of our cars, for all, for everyone to know that we are children of the Sovereign Lord and that they can be too, for God to receive His due glory. This is the challenge. We have the tools. We have the authority. What will we do with those? Let us pray. Father, when we stop to think about how you have blessed us it's incomprehensible because you've done so on so many levels and each of them is a huge thing. Father, you sent Jesus to be our Saviour. You give us an inheritance that we enjoy partly on here, here on earth and fully in heaven. And Lord, you know our character so well that you even gave us the Holy Spirit to stay with us. Thank you for all those things. Father, I pray that we would leave here with a stirring appreciation of that. And that because we feel that as we go about our day-to-day lives, that we would be changed people. Lord, that we would show forth your seal. That we would encourage others to live for your glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.